This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Times Red Box podcast. Hello, thank you for downloading. It's still Luke Jones, apologies. Matt Chorley is sunning himself on the Costa del Hampshire uh, for a couple more days. He'll be back next week. Ahead, we have got so many good things. Um, we're hearing from another pre-pandemic professor, uh, some, uh, Sir Mike Tilsley. I accidentally promoted him, Dr Mike Tilsley. He is an infectious disease modeller. He advises government as part of the modelling subgroup of SAGE and he will tell us about... What an amazing career he's had looking at Ebola and rabies, but also how he's well into taekwondo, as of a couple of years ago, and for years has been doing AMDRAM. And also the worries of being a scientist and going on the airways during a pandemic and saying things which then lead the newspapers or the splash on the BBC News website and getting you know, stick and, and uh, hate mail as a result. Uh, and what a stress that has been, especially because they haven't been paid, which I was surprised to learn if they're member for some of these committees we're going to do that we're going to talk about online justice and whether it's justice of course there's a huge backlog in the courts in england and wales in particular uh so we're going to hear from lots of experts on whether we should be doing more things online and the justice minister one of the justice ministers um lord wilson david wilson will talk to us about that first of all let's check in with our regular columnists on a thursday james marriott and india knight india uh, where in the world are you uh i'm in suffolk james is in the studio living breathing in front of me what a treat um thank you for coming in james thank you you're in the office anyway you said one day a week now how's that how, how, how are you dealing with that yeah i'm coping I, I i think i'm not the i'm not the world's most enormous office fan i was quite happy working from home and especially writing i find it a lot easier to concentrate but i am accepting that it's probably time for me to be re-socialized back into society yes and to learn how to talk to people again which i'm which i'm doing gradually i think i may i don't know how successful you'll judge how successful i have become at this <laughs> I'm struggling with having to share a tube train carriage with others. That's a, a reasonably new thing, which I'm uh, not fond of. Um, India, on our topic of, of finding things for free, ever picked anything up on the street or anything I'm you've got for free? I'm amazed by your piano. That's amazing. Was the piano just sitting there? So it was a bar down the road from me, a sort of basement bar, and I walked past it and they just had this piano um, on the pavement and the guy who owns the bar was there and I said, is this, is this for taking? And he was like, yeah, please, take it. So he said, oh, do you want to sort of, 
um, a sort of wheelie thing to pop it on. I was like, oh, yes, please. Anyway, then I sort of managed to wheel this actually quite huge, heavy piano all the way home. But the problem was at the time I lived in a flat, which was um, on the third floor. So I waited until all my housemates were back. We had this heavy piano. We got it onto the first step and then all expired. And I put it on Gumtree and someone took it away in a van the next day because we came from. Oh, oh, never mind, though. What a cool thing, a piano. Yeah, I was quite pleased with that. Um, but you know India, James, anyone? Well, nothing for me. The only thing I can think of is I live near the near the Regent's Canal, and they're always you the shopping trolley out. Loads of shopping trolleys, <laughs> uh, loads of bits of old bike, all piled up by the edge of the canal because um, there's this phenomenon called magnet fishing, which I've encountered recently. People throw magnets into the canal to try and find things. All they invariably find is total junk, and it gets piled up along the edge of the canal. Oh, is that what that is? You sort of see um, hubcaps and bits of yeah. motorcycle. Um, I spoke to a couple of them once, and they were saying that basically the, the most exciting thing they found in the canal was uh, they found a suitcase with a PlayStation 3 <laughs> and someone's cut-up suit, which they thought was the, inside it, which they thought was the result of a, a relationship that had ended yeah, acrimoniously. Yeah, very much <laughs> Good grief. Anyway, um... Move us on. In... extraordinary things. Sorry, just to go back no, to three things. When I lived in Primrose Hill, which was, well, it, it, it was on the up, but, you know, that very, very rich people were moving in all the time. And um, once in a skip on our road, somebody had torn out a kitchen that must genuinely, with no exaggeration, have cost upwards of £100,000 in a skip. And happily, it wasn't there two days later. So somebody availed themselves. But, you know. Oh, I see. Yeah, you I'm weren't very, running down the street later with a sink under you. No, no. I already <laughs> had a kitchen. No, I believe in keeping the kitchen that comes with, you know, usually, unless it's really, really horrible. I just think it's such a crazy thing to tear out. A really expensive, marble-topped, exquisite, handmade, you know, mm. just because it was, I don't know the wrong colour or something. People are stupid. <laughs> they are. We're expecting, um, we're expecting news during the programme about travel, about the green list, of course, lots of uh, smug people. All of my Instagrams seem to be in Portugal at the moment. Um, James, are you itching to see the green list extended so you can get away to, I think, Finland might be on the cards, Malta, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I'm properly desperate to go on holiday. The one comfort I am taking is that all the countries keep getting moved on and off um, this green list is that because I'm so badly organised and consistently fail to book a holiday, every time something gets moved on to the green list, I think... Oh. I'm going to go there. I'm going to go to Portugal. Then I think about booking to go to Portugal. I fail to book to go to Portugal. And then um, potentially Portugal's going to move back off the green list. And then I'll feel smug that my disorganisation has potentially saved the disaster. <laughs> India, have you got a summer of holidays already booked in? I've got really, really modest ambitions. I've got a trip to Bruges booked. I'm a Belgian national, so I'm hoping oh. that might help. I don't know. Uh, booked for the end of July. Um, and I don't really know whether that's going to happen or not. And then um, at the at the late end of the summer we go to Ireland for um a few weeks which I think I mean this is the thing you know we need clarification I'm not I'm not sure about either of these destinations and that they're the opposite of exotic so (laughs) further afield just seems like a big headache I don't think anybody knows and understands anything anymore it's the guidance such as it is is really unclear I think we need a green list and a red list and the amber list should go in the bin Yes, and also it's it's not just knowing what the rules are for the countries that are already on the green list. It's about keeping aware of who the runners and riders are for who might yeah. be on it. Um, yeah. And uh, Lisa Nandy, the Channel Foreign Secretary, was just on James, and she was saying that she's she's not booked uh, summer holiday. In fact, there's lots of suggestions that actually should be just again say it's not happening. The people who have managed to get away, you know, they've done very very well, but that's not for you. Just deal with it and go to Blackpool. That makes me that makes me feel so depressed because I missed it last year as well. So a little thing yeah. at the end of the summer when everyone suddenly went to France. 
Um, and I completely missed that. And I'm, I just occasionally, especially now it's sunny, I just occasionally get hit by this like overwhelming, like just sort of really intense feeling of how much I'd love to be sitting in like a little coffee shop in a sort of provincial French town or something with a coffee and a book in the kind of square. And I want to do that, I think, more than anything in the world. And the fact that I probably won't due to all these um, changing travel restrictions and my own lack of uh, organisational ability um, is really making me uh, really very upset at the moment. See, I know lots of law-abiding people who are currently in France. I don't, I don't really understand how. Well, remember, there was a sort of, there was a few days, wasn't there, where... It was on the ambulance. You had to do all the uh, quarantining and testing yeah. uh, malarkey, but it was sort of okay to go on holiday. And then on the airwaves, ministers were sort of saying, "No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not." So maybe they vanished in that um, in that confusion. Yeah, made use of it. Yeah. Well, we'll yeah. we await new greenlist news, um, which we're promised will happen at some point during this program. So we'll, we'll update you as and when. Um, the other issue at hand, James, is the the catching up pupils catching up. Kevin Collins now resigned. He said it was going to cost 15 billion. The government has stumped at 1.4. It's an incredibly important thing to get right, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's just extraordinary to imagine what it must be like to be at school and to have just lost huge chunks out the chunks out the school year. Whenever I read about this, there is my kind of residual inner school child that um, kind of thinks how incredibly fun it must be to have lost a lot of school. But I know that's a very irresponsible opinion. Uh, I mean, yeah, it just sounds like we're, this doesn't sound like nearly enough when you consider that um, the United States, I think, is putting, is it £1,600 um, per pupil into their kind of catch-up programme? And we've got about 50, is it 50 pounds per pupil per year, I yeah. think is the figure. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. it just seems really extraordinary. I mean, I know people are saying that perhaps Boris Johnson is waiting for Gavin Williamson to be moved on. Then his successor will, you know, um, will get the extra money. But that just seems like a very, I don't know, it's like a very arbitrary way to miss out, you know, presumably this action needs to happen as soon as possible. It seems a kind of strange way to plan all this. And India, Boris Johnson did say that, education and and the catch-up and, and levelling up, these are some of his top priorities. It's not like it's something way down at the bottom of his manifesto. Yes, it's a really strange thing because the uh, the, the red wall areas, which um, which they, which the Tories won at the last election, are particularly affected. Um, there are lots of... Uh, there's a disproportionate number of disadvantaged pupils, so I don't really kind of understand the thinking behind it at all. I don't understand why it's happened. But also there's an interesting question about money isn't there because actually 15 billion is a is a hell of a lot of money the government has said okay at the moment 1.4 is the best we can do um we've also just been hearing about the foreign aid budget cut mm-hmm. um later we're going to hear about the courts and how they need cash um it's hard to see what exactly is a, is a vote winner and actually in terms of what we're talking to lisa nandy about james in terms of the foreign aid budget is that the is that the most palatable thing to chop in the minds of voters because i guess education is very close to home has a, a easily defined uh, return on investment, but actually foreign aid is are, are many voters actually agitated by that cut? Yeah, I mean that's probably the unfortunate thing about it, isn't it? That educate yeah. nothing can be closer to home than education because almost everybody, you know, will know will either have a kid who's being educated or knows someone, and that's just you know, that's that's impossible to avoid. But the whole idea of foreign aid, I think, for a lot of people is just very unpresent, mm. and that always just makes it this kind of very, you know, unfortunately, yeah. it's always very subject to these kind of. Um, these kind of cuts. Although it'd be interesting to see if there is um, this kind of uh, Tory rebellion they're talking about that might occur and yes. we, might, um, we might save that. Um, shenanigans over amendments. We haven't had that in ages. Sorry, India, go on. Sorry, no, no, I was saying it's very interesting about foreign aid because the public always thinks, well, why, we, you know, we need the money, why are we sending it over there? Yeah. And I think, yeah. it's, it's, I think it's really morally 
necessary. But it's really important that the foreign aid budget is not cut, but it's a very kind of, you need a very authoritative, uh, you need the government to be very authoritative about it and to just say, no, this is earmarked for that and we're not touching it. Because the moment you, it's rather like the death penalty, you know, the moment you start asking people, they go, no, get rid of it. No, they can, you know, let them mm. look after their own people, et cetera, et cetera. So it needs to be really enshrined, I think, foreign aid, because the idea, it's just appalling to me, the idea of foreign aid cuts, awful. But I mean, this education thing, of course, is just as awful. And since there are billions of uh, billions of pounds being found from all over the place for everything else, I really don't see why education shouldn't be the absolutely uppermost priority. And you can imagine parents getting furious about this. India. Yeah. I can't remember. Have you got kids that still at school age? Or what, I've got one still school age, although interestingly, she's loved all of this. Because <laughs> she has a, a statement of educational special needs. And so for her, going to school online, mostly online, she's been physically at school a bit as well. But um, initially being at school physically online was incredibly calming for mm. her. You know, it took away layers and layers and layers of pressure. So she rather liked it. Um and then went back and sort of wished that she could still do it online because there's so much to negotiate. It's, yeah. it's not just the work, it's the people and the stuff and the vibe and the teachers and the talking and the fitting in and the da-da-da. So, um, so she's had a nice time, but nevertheless, I think, you know, regardless of my daughter's nice time, I think, yeah, I think government needs to do a bit better. James, you've been interestingly musing on the value of education in the time today in your comment piece. Um Lay out your argument for us because it's. I have a lot of sympathy with it. Yeah, so this is actually one of my. This is one of my great obsessions. Actually, is the overvaluing of academic intelligence in our society. Um, and something I think I've been thinking and reading about a lot. But my sort of my basic thesis was that we've kind of academic intelligence, which is one human value among many. There are many ways to be intelligent. There are many other skills beyond intelligence to have mm. that are important. You know, in work and in life, but. For some reason, academic intelligence has assumed this enormous status in our society to the extent that I think for a lot of people, consciously or subconsciously, your academic ability is almost a kind of final statement of your value as a human being. Uh, so, I mean, so many jobs that once would never require degrees now require degrees. I mean, it's amazing to remember that things like, you know, banking and I mean, obviously journalism, a, a degree was by no means a necessity for those jobs you know, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and they're just these amazing little cultural factors that um, I was sort of looking up. So, for example, the New York Times, when they published their marriage lists, once upon a time, they would sort of people would um, publish their family pedigrees when they made their marriage announcement in the New York Times. Now they do their degrees and their postgraduate degrees, because I think especially uh. for very wealthy, you know, upper middle class people, education is all consuming part of your identity. And I just think that's completely wrong. And yeah, academic intelligence is important. It's very useful for some things, but we've just got it completely out of proportion. India. Expand, expand on your... Uh. I agree so much that I'm practically levitating with agreement. <laughs> um, it's just, it's a complete nonsense. I mean, academic intelligence is great and jolly good, and it's like being good at sports or good at, you know, it's, it's, it's a thing that ought to occupy a space of its own. It doesn't prepare you in any way for being either a decent human being or a person who is able to function as they go through life. It's no indicator of anything at all. Often it's an indicator, particularly with these sort of pretendy rubbish degrees from pretendy rubbish universities that everybody now seems to be keen on acquiring, that, don't, that, that, that add nothing to anything. They don't even add to your chances of getting a good job. I mean, they're just sort of nonsense. But the idea that, that they define you and that they define who you are and that you 
then very often consider yourself cleverer than than you know the masses and that you as james says in his brilliant column it's such a good column as james says that you you know you're you, you acquire moral superiority and are able to sit in judgment on anybody who doesn't have the same number of degrees as you it's just nonsense well hang on in nonsense. I, I should point out that james doesn't necessarily practice what he preaches because in your column you also do um, lay out how you at a vast expense you did a near useless master's degree yeah i um i mean i think this is actually if you want any proof that intelligent uh, that education is no proof of intelligence i wonder how intelligent it is to do two separate english literature degrees um which is what i did and yeah my master's for me was quite a disillusioning experience because i was so fixated on the idea of it i i, I was working in a bookshop i was saving all my money i moved to my grandma's house so i didn't have to pay any rent which i got this enormous loan from the government and i went and actually i didn't do that much learning uh, I think I wasn't at any essays for the first term. By the end, what, I just... What were you doing? Sort of, yeah, what were you doing? What I was doing, actually, was I, I, had a, I, had my, I kept my job on at the same time. I was also writing for The Times for the first time. So the main useful thing that I did was that I just used all my spare time not doing my master's to write book reviews for The Times. Um, Where did that get you? Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> so that is one argument in favour of a master's. But the experience was really disillusioning. And at the end, when I got this degree certificate, I just thought what is this worth? This is just this kind of mystical document, this extremely mm. expensive mystical document that... I don't think it certifies anything about me, really. Just that, you know, I made all these, like, enormous financial sacrifices. Mm. Um, and I just think this is almost a symbol for me of the way that intelligence has this kind of almost, yeah, like, mystical kind of quality in our society. Mm. That degree is just a spirit... It's almost spiritual for people that you should have a degree. And no one would... You know, I don't think we stop to question of actually what does it represent? Yeah. What practical things are behind that? India, uh, But also the idea of sticking it in your marriage announcement. I mean, it's yeah, apart ridiculous. from the fact that it's... Um, the, the naffest thing I've ever, ever heard. It's like people in their 40s or 50s or 60s who still bang on about where they went to school. You know, just know. Uh, when was the last time you wafted your credentials under anyone's nose, India? Um, decades. Decades ago. Yeah, so I don't think I've ever had to... Also, the other thing... If is, ever. Is, also, yeah. the thing is proof as well. When have I ever actually had to prove that I went to university? <laughs> I mean, I've written it down in things, but I could just bump it up to an MA, actually, if I... If I felt the need at some point. Anyway, let's not go down that uh, rabbit hole. Um, finally, very quickly, um, jabs. I'm that boring person who wasn't particularly interested and then I got jabbed yesterday and now it's all I want to talk about. Um, James, you are under 30 as well. I am. So in England, you're, it's not an offer for you yet? No. Um, are you tempted to do as I did and try and um, sniff out some leftovers? Not at all. I sort of haven't really thought about my... Va- I mean, this is probably very bad of me. I've barely thought about getting vaccinated. Sort of... Because I spent so long watching... Everyone else get vaccinated. A couple of my friends have done what you've done and, you know, got yeah. in there and got theirs early. And I've just sort of watched it happening, but I can't, I haven't really imagined it's something that's going to happen to me. Sort of this mythical thing in the future. I don't really know why I've gotten to that mindset. India, can you make the case for James? Oh, oh yes. No, it's, it's incredibly exciting. I've got my second one on Saturday and my daughter has got her second one uh, this afternoon. And we are in a state of extreme anticipation mm. excited anticipation did you get it in an interesting place geographically um i got it at a little doctor surgery in um the nearest sort of small market town and it was really nice and there was such a nice feeling everybody was so happy to be there and to be getting their jab and the people administering the jabs were charming and the helpers were charming and everybody got stickers and it was really <laughs> it really felt it felt like the olympic the london olympics yeah. it felt really kind of unifying and great so tonight uh, this afternoon 
for my daughter, we're going to the local youth centre, which I'm yeah, also really looking forward to. Which I would have thought that enthusiasm would have worn off by now. But yeah, I had that yesterday. The guy was yeah, I'm like... Still, I'm he, still pretty keen. Yeah, but as you say, there was that kind of atmosphere, which was just, yeah, do it, James. I'm, I'm in, quite amazing, I'm actually. Insist, India, I'm India really did sell me on that. Our columnists, James Marriott and India Knight. Next, our pre-pandemic professor. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. First of all, can I start by asking you, um, just, just to explain your title, because when we speak to um, people such as yourself and, and other scientists and modellers and immunologists and virologists, um, sometimes I genuinely do not understand what your job title is. And I've got it written down here as Associate Professor in Infectious Disease Modelling at the School of Life Sciences and Mathematics Institute, University of Warwick. Um, in layman's terms, what does that mean? Yeah, so I realise that title's quite a mouthful. So basically, so I'm essentially, I mean, I'm a university lecturer, really. So what we do is obviously we work at the university and part of our time is research, part of our time is teaching. My centre actually is, um, I actually work in the um, Zeeman Institute, um, which is uh, which is called the Systems Biology and Infectious Disease Epidemiology Research Centre, which is even more of a mouthful, um, <laughs> and has the rather corny acronym of SPIDER with a B, um, rather than a P. Um, so this is kind of our research institute that really is um, quite a lot of us who have been involved in, say, SPIM modelling through Warwick, a part of SPIDER, this research institute yeah. that I say that's affiliated to Maths Department, Life Sciences, Norstow Statistics and Computer Science and various other departments within the university. Let's rewind really, really far back. Um, I wonder how you first got into this kind of thing. Was, were your parents scientific types? So um, my parents are actually both maths teachers, or they were, they're now retired. Um, and so, um, yeah, so they were both, um, my dad taught at secondary school. My mum was actually head of a primary school, but had previously taught maths at the secondary level. Um, so I suppose I come from a family of scientists. My, my brother actually has a PhD in quantum gravity um, and actually now works for the Ministry of Defence. So we are a, very much a, a family of scientists. Um, my um, I had a bit of a circuitous route into epidemiology, actually. So I did my undergraduate degree in maths um, at University of Cambridge, and my PhD was actually astrophysical fluid dynamics. So during the first year of my PhD, we did um, um, we were sort of encouraged to take several classes, and I went to a class on uh, population dynamics, which was actually given by 
Professor Matt Keeling, who was Dr. Matt Keeling at the time, um, who was in Cambridge, but was actually moving to Warwick, which is obviously where I now work and where he now works. Yeah. Um, and I just went and had a conversation with him. And it seemed like actually a lot of the skills I was learning in my PhD were very transferable to these kind of infectious disease problems. And to be honest, it was something I was actually much more passionate about. And so after my PhD, I, um, I transitioned into infectious diseases. And it was shortly after the 2001 foot and mouth epidemic. So actually a lot of my early research was on modeling foot and mouth disease kind of after an outbreak and trying to look at control strategies that could be implemented for future outbreaks. And what was that like? And what did you, what did you learn? I mean, it was, I I think if I, I learned an awful lot of modeling skills during my PhD, which actually meant that moving into infectious diseases kind of from a technical perspective Um, I found an easy transition to make. What was more challenging um, was obviously all of a sudden you're moving from something that was basically physics into something that was very basically biology. And I had to learn a lot of, you know, a lot of basic biology, how these systems worked, how diseases spread. So that obviously took a a little bit of time during the first couple of years of my postdoc to understand that. The other really interesting aspect of that was the engagement with policy. So we did a lot of kind of engagement with DEFRA, um, the Department of the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. And I think that's something that I found really interesting. Now, as a, as a solar physicist, um, I think the difficulty I always found um, is it's a very, very well-developed field that's been in existence for hundreds of years. And I found it really hard to kind of um, see where my place was in that. That, yeah. you know, really what I was doing was a very small building block on hundreds of years worth of research. And I found it really hard to see how in my lifetime, the work that I was doing would have impact. Um, and I think with infectious disease modeling, it was something that I actually thought, you know what, I can actually see the re- almost real time benefits of this. So the foot and mouth outbreak was uh, right at the beginning of your, uh, your career with infectious disease modeling. As you move through the years, what other outbreaks be that here in the uk or abroad um did you did you work on or or study and that you found particularly interesting um i was um i was involved um i don't know whether you remember there was a very small foot and mouth outbreak in 2007 in surrey in the south of england and of course it was not that long after 2001 so we were um I think the government was still very worried that you know we might get another big outbreak only six years after the previous one so i was involved in that work. Um, At the time, um, my hunch very much was that um, it was in Surrey, and Surrey is a very low livestock density area, provided there hadn't been spread to elsewhere in the country. um, It was probably going to be okay in terms of it wouldn't cause a large-scale outbreak. Um, So um, now we did some work to look at potentially the impact of vaccination as to whether vaccination should be used to control the outbreak. Ultimately, what we found was actually the key thing was the movement control needed to be in place quickly. If that was the case and you hadn't seen spread to, say, somewhere like Cumbria, that's a very high density livestock area, it was probably safe and you probably didn't need to vaccinate. So that was the work that we did at that time. Interesting. Um, More recently, um, we did a little bit of work even a couple of years ago on um, the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo. This was back in 2018 in the um, in the west of the country that we did a little bit of modelling work on. And there were there were a few kind of meetings with with policy about that and the potential risk of, say, larger scale spread and possibly importation. So we did some work on that. And that was, again, 
interesting to sort of start to look at kind of a human disease and all the mm. potential impacts around that. And I'm interested in the, you know, earlier you were saying how, how you moved away from solar physics because um, it wasn't necessarily something where you could see your work having a, a sort of real world impact. And when you moved into infectious disease modelling, um, you were looking at uh, foot and mouth, which obviously affected cattle and obviously affected the, 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 the livelihoods and lives of lots of, of, of farmers. Um, but then as you move into Ebola and, and what was happening in the DRC, and if you, I remember at the time, the worry that actually it could turn into a huge a, you know, outbreak that might reach us here in the UK and, and affect people's lives here in the UK. I wonder what it was like for you as a, as a mathematician to, to start to feel the weight of the world on you and think, I've, you know, what you're doing is, is genuinely important because it is, it's a matter of life and death for many people. Yeah, and I think that's that's a big weight of responsibility. And I think actually, I mean, I'll give you a different example, if 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 I may, because yeah. actually, I think this is probably um, the point when I probably first really realised this. So um, we've been working out in the Philippines on rabies, um, yes. and um, now rabies is a um, you know is a easily preventable um, disease with uh, with vaccination essentially. So um, you can, if you vaccinate, obviously, this canine rabies, if you vaccinate the dog population and you vaccinate enough dogs, then essentially it's very, very easily preventable. When people get bitten by uh, rabid dogs, um, if they go to the hospital within, say, 72 hours and they get a um, sort of a schedule of vaccinations, of um, sort of post-exposure vaccinations over a period of several weeks, again, it's almost 100% survivable. But if you don't go within those 72 hours um, and you have un unluckily been bitten by a rabid dog, then the mortality rate is almost 100%. So um, we were running this project and actually I was fortunate to go to a, um, a meeting organised by the World Organisation for Animal Health out in the Philippines. They've been running a very successful vaccination programme out there. Um, and we were taken round on some of their vaccination campaigns and got to go out and visit people um, and see people on the ground and how they were affected by rabies. I got to go to the hospitals, to the animal bite treatment clinics where they were giving the post-exposure vaccines. Um, and all of a sudden you realise that actually this is something we could do something about. Um, mm. And we started a very, what seems like a very, very simple um, study where all we were doing is we were, we developed a mobile phone app and we were interviewing patients when they came into the hospital, getting all the information we could about the bite incident, and then establishing, well, is this an incident where, for example, you know, a child has stood on the dog's paw and the, and the dog has just bit the child? Mm. That's probably not a rabid dog. Um, and then, at, but actually trying to look at evidence of whether we think actually based upon the bite incident, that might be a rabid animal. And then once we have that information, feeding it through to the veterinary services who would go out and find the animal and prevent that dog, hopefully, from biting any more individuals. Wow. Very, very simple process. But then, of course, we can collect these data, we can plug them into a model, and then we can actually establish what the effectiveness of this kind of policy would be. Um, and I think having, you know, having had the opportunity to go out to the Philippines several times over the last few years and visit these clinics and talk to people who'd been personally affected, it really hits home that, you know, what, 20 years ago, I was kind of a, um, an applied mathematician stroke solar physicist, and all of a sudden, you're actually running a field project that actually has impact and saves people's lives. I think it's, there's a huge weight of responsibility. And it's also quite daunting, because ultimately, these projects rely on funding. Um, you know, yeah. And we can only fund these projects for a certain period of time. 
um, at which point, you know, our funding runs out and then you're reliant on in-country partners continuing them. One COVID question, if I may, and it's not really about COVID, it's more about you, um, sort of taking us on from, from sort of what you were talking about there. There was a, a weekend, a few weekends ago, where you were on, I think, the BBC on a Saturday morning. It was a reasonably slow news day, if you don't mind me saying. And you said something about holidays. I can't remember what it was. And it was the splash on the BBC News website for the whole day. And it was in almost all the newspapers on the Sunday morning. Just something that you said in the course of an interview talking, I think, about the likelihood of, of, of foreign travel. I wonder what it's like for you now, even though you've had years and years and years of um, experience and research in, in, in infectious disease modelling, to have that pressure of when you say something, it's news and not, you know, on page 15 in your local paper, but national news and quite widespread national news. Is that terrifying? Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, you've brought up a, um, a really important point because that's a weekend that um, I really, I really am striving to forget. I mean, this was a, it was a, it was really a Radio 4, yeah. um, a Today programme interview. And I mean, actually, I stand by a lot of what I said in that interview, but I, it was a really unfortunate choice of words and I should have been much more careful with how I phrase this. I think I said something along the lines of, I thought that um, summer holidays were extremely unlikely for the average holidaymaker. Yeah. Um, and then it was only by the afternoon I started to get a whole flurry of hate emails and Twitter trolling. Okay. And then I thought, what on earth has gone on here? And then I actually looked and I saw that headline on the BBC website, government advisor says this. Mm. Um, and I mean, ultimately, you know, this is my responsibility. I should be really, really careful about how I phrase these things when I know that these affect people's lives. And I have learned a you know, very tough lesson from that. Um, but the, on the other side of it, I think it's actually a huge responsibility with the media. I mean, ultimately, right, mm. you know, I am part of SPYM and I am one of, you know, over 100 people who puts in advice to government. Um, but having a headline that says government advisor says this is really not telling the whole story. You know, if that's my personal opinion, then it has no impact on what the government do. Yeah. Um, and I think that was where I was really frustrated with the BBC for that headline that um, you know, it's something that I said. And of course, they were quoting something that I said. So they weren't quoting anything inaccurately, as it were. Yeah. But it was massively over exaggerating a statement that I made on a radio interview. And of course, there were huge repercussions, not just for me, but also for the travel industry based on that headline. And um, but it also slightly worries me because um, what I don't want is you know, sort of moderate scientists, as it were, to be scared of doing the media for fear yeah. of these headlines going viral. And I think that's, you know, I've certainly, you know, had periods of time where, I'm, where I ignore my phone because I think, you know what, I just can't face this today because I fear the backlash. You know, I think we are, we're doing a tough job. Um, the scientific advisors, you know, we're not paid for this. I think that's something that often is misunderstood. You're not. Um, but we are not. No, so members of SPYM are... Yeah, we are part of SPYM um, in addition to our regular job. We don't get paid for it. Um, we obviously, we're paid by our universities and we're extremely yeah. fortunate that we have, you know, we have stable jobs in a climate when many people do not. So I am not, you know, um, I, you know I'm not trying to come over as woe is me whatsoever when I know that, you know, so many people have had a really, really horrendous last, you know, 15 months. Um, but I think sometimes there is this misconception that, Almost it's in our interests for control to continue because we're getting paid a fortune by the government. We don't. We are doing it as independent academics in addition to our regular jobs um, without additional pay. So, you know, yeah. we are 
often working evenings, weekends, well into the night to do this work because, of course, you're holding down your own academic job at the same time. Tell me about amateur dramatics. <laughs> so, yes, um, I mean, it, probably it's, I'm, I'm not doing quite so much as I was in the um, pre-COVID, but um, I have a little theatre company. Um, that we actually specialise. You sleep, Mike. You're doing the taekwondo. You're doing this government advice work. You're doing this theatre company. Incredible. Well, as I say, we are the the amateur dramatics has taken a bit of a back um, back seat. Yeah. But um, we uh, we have a little theatre company that mainly do actually First World War um, pieces. So I have written a couple of plays. I've had a couple of First World War one act plays published, um, and yeah, we mainly do festivals many years ago i used to do musicals that's how i got started uh, and i've done a lot of plays at my local theater in kenilworth but more recently i've been doing a lot of festival pieces but when you uh, say incidentally we, i was gonna say when, sorry, you just, no, when you say do plays or musicals you mean are you uh starring in them directing them lighting them writing them what are you up to um so um generally um I mean, I started out acting, so I mainly do acting, but I do do a lot more writing these days um, and occasional directing. Um, and actually, a couple of years ago, well, about four or five years ago, um, my, my wife and I did write a, um, a World War I TV pilot episode that we did actually film um, and oh, okay. um, was actually, uh, well, was actually screened, but uh, unfortunately didn't get picked up. So that's uh, something that we sort of got involved in in our spare time. And post-pandemic, you think that will that will be dragged off the back seat, and you'll um, and you'll be able to do a bit more. Well, I hope so. Um, so, I mean, I have been actually been I've actually been asked to do a play by our local theatre company in February next year, and I, my my answer has been very much I would love to, but of course we have to wait and see what the situation is going to be with COVID because you know I keep being very very cautious not to commit to too much right now. I keep yeah. thinking, you know, six months hence things will be back to normal, and you know I thought. 12 months ago that by this time we'd all be back to normal and I sadly proved to be wrong. So I'm trying not to get too excited about things and uh, taking it a little, a little bit of a step at a time. That was Dr. Mike Tilsley, uh, infectious disease modeler. He's an associate professor at the University of Warwick. Now, the big question as we emerge out of this pandemic, what are we going to do about the courts? Obviously, there are so many issues with, with schools and the like, but justice, how do we get that back on track is one option to do it online. Is online justice justice? We'll start with Professor Richard Suskind, a technology advisor to the Lord Chief Justice and author of Online Courts and the Future of Justice. How widely has technology been used in courts before the pandemic? The most interesting aspect of technology, I think, before the pandemic was people's attitudes, that people thought that the role of technology was simply to automate our past ways of working, to graft technology onto our court practices and procedures. And what happened, of course, when courtrooms around the world had to close was that people realised that technology could play a very different role in offering access to justice. And we saw the emergence of a quite remarkable range in almost 170 countries now of what we're calling remote hearings, and mainly mm. by video, by video hearings. And so we saw the shift from technology regarded as a back office facility to technology going to the heart of the delivery of court service. And in terms of the UK uh, and uh, courts in England and Wales more specifically, um, how much of, of an upgrade did our courts need technically, physically? Well, the pandemic came in the middle of a major reform programme. In fact, the largest court reform programme in the world. And so 
many of the technologies that were required to help us collaborate and communicate and come online together were already partially in place because the reform programme was in the middle of being rolled out. So I think we were better prepared, much better prepared in this country than many other countries. But I have to say that the underlying problem here is you can characterise in a variety of ways. Of course, COVID has caused courts to close. Of course, big backlogs have built up. But the long-standing problem that predates COVID is the access to justice problem. Our courts, frankly, are too expensive. They take too long for uh, a case to be progressed. The process is unintelligible unless you're a lawyer. And increasingly, it's all feeling rather out of step in a digital society. And if you look at figures from the OECD, for example, they suggest that 46% of people, only 46% of people in our world live under the protection of the law, have realistic access to lawyers and courts. In India, the backlog of cases in their court system is 30 million. In Brazil, it's 80 million. So what COVID has done is brought very sharply cases. into focus. Sorry, sorry, on that point, in India, the backlog is 30 million cases. 30 million cases in their court system, Good 80 grief. million in Brazil, as yet unresolved. And the question I've been asking over the decades has been very simply this. Is court a service or a place? I'm sure lots of people can get on board with the idea of quite um, brief technical hearings being held over zoom or, or skype or whatever the equivalent that they're using is but the idea of of sentencing someone to death uh, in some countries or sentencing sentencing people to, to life in prison in this country um doing that over video just seems oddly glib doesn't it do we need to get over that well i do think the discussion we need to have is that of what kinds of cases are suitable for a variety of online treatments mm. and what kinds of cases really do require us to assemble physically in a courtroom. Part of this is personal preference and different cultural views. Uh, my own view, of course, for serious crime, I, I do think we still need to assemble in a physical courtroom. But I'm not saying I will think that in five or ten years' time. And I do know that in other countries people think differently. The discussion, though, has shifted away from whether or not we can do anything as an alternative to the physical courtroom to the extent to which these other methods are usable. And just to remind you what the three broad methods are, first of all, what I call the audio hearing, which is essentially some kind of hearing by telephone conference call, the video hearing, and the third, which I think is a great potential, something called the paper hearing, which in fact there's no hearing at all. Oh. But in, in, and this is very good for low-value civil claims, for example, where evidence and arguments can be submitted electronically, almost like an exchange of emails, and then the judge can return the decision. But it's this kind of, I think, more flexible approach we need to think of if we're going to get through the backlog. And I would start with the high volumes of low-value cases around the world, which really do present a mm. bottleneck for most justice systems. But with any of those options you laid out there, uh, there are issues, aren't there? First of all, um, security... How secure are the current systems that we have uh, for that kind of justice that you're talking about, be it uh, via conference call or via texts on, on email or via video conferencing? Um, th there's a worry that actually people might be getting onto these platforms who shouldn't be. Well, the other side to this, of course, is the question of open justice and transparency. And one of the great principles, I think, of our court system is that, in principle, anyone can walk into a court and see justice in action, mm. see justice being seen to be done. One of the wonderful opportunities with the internet is that this can be uh, essentially far more widely accessible phenomenon. Of course, there are security issues. 
And they're no different from the security issues that face a lot of electronic commerce and electronic government. We're not in the land, uh, Luke, here of the perfect. Uh, we're in the land here of improvement rather than perfection. Yeah. I'm not suggesting, first of all, that all cases should be conducted in one way or another electronically. But I am suggesting there are some cases where, in the interest of proportionality, that's to say just given the amount at stake, it makes sense to have a lower cost uh, service. And yet, while maintaining fundamental principles of justice, certain kinds of cases can be disposed of. There are always going to be problems and difficulties, mm. but of course we have problems and difficulties with our current system, a system that is largely unaffordable and accessible to most people. And even though, I, and I take your point that this in the long run could provide savings for the, for the justice system and the court system in England and Wales, um, but up front, there is going to need a lot of money putting into this to actually make some of these technological solutions possible, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, no, that's absolutely right. The current reform programme is uh, already, it's uh, over £1 billion worth of investment in this court reform programme. So, And is that enough? I, think that, uh, I don't think there's any finishing line here. I think for those who think it's a one-off expense, they're missing the point of technology. Mm. No one would think that in medicine or computer electronics. Uh, we're just going to see more and more advances. So it's a different kind of investment now in a court system. Remember, our court system hasn't really changed fundamentally for 150 years. Yes. But as we moved into uh, a digital society from a print-based society, one has to expect in one of the most document and information-intensive sectors of our of our society that technology will play a role mm. and that technology will cost to develop. And very finally, Richard, um, we've mentioned the backlog uh, in courts around the UK at the moment. We need to make some of these reforms and and innovations in our courts desperately soon, don't we? Because actually, in our own country, the backlog is, is going to be unmanageable post-pandemic. Well, to give a flavour, I understand that the, the backlog in our Crown Courts, that's a serious cases, is approaching 60,000. Yeah. And that means that the hearing of such cases is going to be delayed till next year, the year after, and I've heard even longer than that. So you're absolutely right, Luke. We need to think more imaginatively about how it is we cope with the backlog. Firstly, that COVID has created, but actually, to some extent, pre-existed COVID as well. I wanted to say to you, Luke, that this has rather polarised the legal community. You'll find in yeah, your travels, some people are, what I say, hunkering and hankering. They're hunkering down until COVID passes and hankering after the old ways whereas others are saying we'll never go back. But there's not much in between. And so it's a fascinating public debate just now about the extent to which we can standardise, even industrialise, some of the methods that have been so useful through COVID. My own view is we have to, if we're to overcome the backlog to which you refer. That's Professor, Professor Richard Suskind, uh, an advisor, technical, technology advisor to the Lord Chief Justice, also an author of Online Courts and the Future of Justice. In a moment, we'll get the view of government. First, live to debate it with us, we've got Jodie Blackstock, Legal Director at Justice, a charity working for equal access to the law. Hi, Jodie. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us, Rupert Reed, QC, a commercial law and financial dispute specialist at Sale Courts Chambers. Hi, Rupert. Hi, Luke. Thank you both so much for your time. Um, Jodie, if I could start with you, um, and we can really give us some context. There's a lot at stake here, as Richard Suskind uh, said to us, in terms of the backlog, isn't there? Absolutely. This is a fundamental fair trial issue, and it's also about loss of liberty. That backlog that Richard described of approaching 60,000 cases in our Crown Court, behind it lies 
people who have been remanded in custody for over a year mm. and who won't be now coming up to trial for at least two years. And they've been remanded in conditions where they're 23 hours a day locked down in their cell. Um, we have to think about justice being delayed as justice denied and the impact that has on their family life, loss of liberty, etc. But also on the other side, the victims of those crimes and witnesses and their ability to have justice and the weight that they've had mm. in receiving that justice. And Rupert Reid, um, in terms of uh, of your view of this as a QC, um, Richard Suskin, Professor Suskin, was telling us just then that, that the legal community is divided into into two camps: those who are hankering after the old ways, and those who say we'll never go back. Where do you fall? Well, I think many of us sort of fall somewhere in the middle. I mean, we see the real problems with virtual justice, uh, uh, but at the same time, we recognise it's necessary and you know, offers real advantages in terms of procedural hearings, but there are uh, issues with virtual justice when it comes to the examination of witnesses in particular. Uh, I mean, the modern advocate in a commercial trial uh, doing a virtual trial is likely to be look, look rather like a city trader and that they're sitting in front of an entire bank of screens trying to follow what the judge is saying, trying to look at the documents, trying to follow communications between various members of the legal team, looking at live transcripts that are passing between the legal team, uh, perhaps uh, liaising with junior lawyers on points of legal research that are arising. All of that affects the essential communication between the advocate and the tribunal. Mm -hmm. In the old days, there was a, there was a tug of a gown by a, by a junior law or by a solicitor. And that was, that was the means by which the legal team communicated with the advocate. The advocate was focused on communicating with the judge and, and, and trying to get the points across to the tribunal. But now with virtual hearings, things have become so much more complicated. There's a real issue of sensory overload. Uh, in terms of what the advocate has to deal with. So, so, sounds, that, so Rupert, it sounds like you're saying uh, no, absolutely not at all, um, these kind of uh, virtual hearings. Well, I, 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 I am probably slightly on that side of the debate. I think we have to work out how to make it work. And I, at the moment, I think there are, there are some real issues with it. Mm. Um, I can see the arguments that, as to why it's needed. I do a lot of international commercial work and arbitration. For me, uh, not having to fly to Singapore or Dubai uh, for, for, for short hearings is a massive advantage in terms yeah. of saving time, and it's a huge advantage in terms of costs. So in terms of international yeah. uh, legal work, it's a, it's a huge advantage. But we have to work out how to make it work properly so that, you know, that, we, that we're not... Um, uh, swamped by the technology, that we're able to focus mm. on, the, the, on the judge, on the, on the communication with the tribunal, that we're able to properly examine witnesses. So much of uh, trial is about the demeanour of the witness. I, I, I know there's a huge debate on, on, on this issue too, but uh, when someone isn't sure of what they're saying or when someone is lying, there's a whole range of visual cues that we as advocates yeah. are looking for. And, and where that witness is just a bank on a screen of faces... Uh, on a Zoom call. It's very hard to know who they're looking to for reassurance. But, but, for reassurance. It's very hard to know whether they're looking away. Yeah. So but, away the box, but away from the witness box, but away from the witness box, Jenny Blackstock um, from Justice, um, there's an mm -hmm. interesting question about uh, juries in this. And obviously throughout the pandemic, uh, that hasn't been possible because, because of restrictions. But do you think there is a place in the future for juries to phone it in, Zoom it in? I think there's a place now for it. Um, what we're looking at is how we address issues in a pandemic and the consequence of that pandemic upon the right to a fair 
and timely trial in the in the crown court context that means having to get lots of people into one room which at the moment is simply not possible for the vast majority of our um, serious trials in in England and Wales in Scotland they're already addressing this Last year, Justice put together a mock trial process to try and address this issue because we could see the backlog coming. And we were able to demonstrate um, through an online platform that it is possible to hold a trial, a jury trial in that way for certain kinds of hearing. And as a consequence of that um, fourth test where we put a jury together in a community hall together, um, the, the Scottish Court Service has picked up the idea and run with cinema juries. So the jury sits in a cinema room and uh, is beamed in effectively to the hearing. Um, and they are on, on, on the wall where they would normally sit in their jury seats. They're on that wall and each of them has a camera on them and they're able to take part that way. As a consequence, Scotland has got back up to full capacity in its trials. I mean, there's just one point I want to come back on yeah. here in terms of witness evidence. We have had special measures in place in the criminal courts for 20 years where vulnerable witnesses and children take part in giving their evidence and are questioned over a live link. And that's an accepted process. The, the evidence is still out on whether um, evidence is actually diminished by questioning someone over a link. And I think we need to be much more open to responding to the needs of our um, current society um, and evaluating the outcomes of our trials. Mm. Scotland seems to be showing that there's no difference in outcome in terms of a jury verdict, guilt or in, uh, guilt, guilty or not guilty, or even not proven in Scotland, actually. But that hasn't changed as a result of having a jury in a separate place. Well, that's... What has changed is, the, is the, the backlog of their cases. And I think we need to be yeah. much more creative with fairness as the, 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 the primary aim throughout all of this. Well, thank you Making for coming on and, and talking us through fair. that. I appreciate it. Jodie Blackstock, Legal Director at Justice, and also we've heard from Rupert Reid, QC, Commercial uh, Law and Financial Dispute Specialist at Sale Court Chambers. Uh, Jodie there talking about the situation in Scotland. In a minute, we'll hear from a Justice Minister with regards to what the government is thinking in terms of England and Wales. That's ahead. It's 11.21. Mariella Frostrup, this afternoon from one on Times Radio. No more time. the summer weather finally arriving, we take a look at some of the best UK festivals for you to explore, from music to comedy to food. Lionel Shriver, the best-selling author of award-winning novels, including We Need to Talk About Kevin, joins us to discuss her latest book, Should We Stay or Should We Go? And why she's not afraid to tackle difficult and controversial topics in her fictions. And comedian and writer Nick Muhammad chats to us about the return of Sky Series Intelligence. Mariella Frostrup, this afternoon from one on Times Radio. This is Times Radio. 11.22, Luke Jones in for Matt Chorley. You can get involved, by the way, in this discussion in terms of online justice. 87222 is how you can text us. Start your message with the word Times and you can tweet us at Times Radio. Uh, right now, though, let's uh, hear from the government on this. Will a greater technological revolution in our courts help with that huge backlog we're facing in the courts, Lord Wolfson, David Wolfson, is a justice minister. What does he make of, of the options on offer uh, from telephone hearings to the likes of using Zoom to even doing on email? What would he like to see? 
Well, in an ideal world, we would want to make use of all the available options. And the critical point is that different cases will require different sorts of treatments. So, for example, let's take a landlord and tenant case. If it's a case where the landlord is seeking to evict the tenants, the judge, and ultimately all of this will be decided by the judges. The judge may decide to have everybody in the room in front of the judge. If it's, however, the tenant who's trying to get reimbursed for £350 for a leaky radiator, the judge might say, well, actually, it's a much better use of everybody's time to do that case online. So the critical point really is that this can't be one size fits all. Mm. We want to have a range of options available to the court so that judges can decide what's best for each individual case. And there's a worry from, well, I guess from some barristers worried about in more serious cases about their ability to put on a on a persuasive show, for want of a better phrase, um, during during hearings. But also there's a worry about if it's very serious tri- tri- trials, something at the Crown Court, for example, the idea of doing it online uh, justice by zoom might seem a little a little glib well let me make a couple of points first of all being a barrister isn't about putting on a show being a barrister is about playing your part in the administration of justice and that's what this is all about online justice is justice the question is how is justice delivered is it going to be delivered in a courtroom or is it going to be delivered online or a combination of both. And that will be for the individual judge to decide. You mentioned Crown Court trials. Let me give an example. Uh, The government wants to ensure that rape victims and intimidated witnesses have the option to give their evidence in advance of the trial online. And then that evidence is recorded and played at the trial. So that's an example of a case which would be heard partly in a courtroom with some evidence recorded online. So as I say, it's not one size fits all. You have to work out what's best for the individual case. Mm. But but that's one option that you just raised there, which is quite an interesting one, especially for rape cases and the like, the idea of of, of alleged victims being able to to tape their evidence and have that played into the court. So that that is something we are are looking at. Um, I mean, already there's been hundreds, uh, frankly, of vulnerable witnesses right around the country who have already been supported uh, by that technology. It's accessible in all Crown Courts. And we're now piloting it for intimidated victims, uh, including uh, those of sexual offences. And of course, the reason this debate is so alive at the moment is that the backlog uh, worsened by by the COVID pandemic is a real issue for for access to justice in England and Wales. Um, How badly is streamlining uh, by using this technology needed, would you say? Well, the first thing to recognise is that throughout the pandemic, the wheels of justice kept turning. Uh, Justice didn't stop. The reason it didn't stop, let me make clear, is because of a huge amount of hard work of court staff, judges, professionals, everybody involved in the system. But now we have to work out how we're going to fashion a justice system for the post-pandemic world. And I've got no doubt that online justice is going to be part of that because it does enable us to have more hearings. It enables people also to vindicate their legal rights. Let me give you a quick example. Let's say you're a tradesperson and you're owed £1,200 and your case is going to take an hour and a half. Are you going to take a day or an afternoon off work in order to get that £1,200? Well, maybe you will. But if you can be given an hour and a half slot online so that you can 
log on, have your hearing and then carry on with your work, it's much more likely that you'll be able to recover your debt to vindicate your legal right. So as I say, online justice is justice. The values of the system remain exactly the same. All that's changing is how those values are delivered. But you said that the wheels of justice have kept turning throughout the pandemic, but the delays have been incredible, haven't they? I mean, a new PCC for, for West Mercia Police said that the backlog there was seeing lives put on hold and lives ruined. That has been the case, hasn't it, this past year? Well, of course, the pandemic has affected us. In this country, important criminal cases are heard by a jury. We couldn't have jury trials for the first part of the pandemic because of the social distancing rules. But we were the first country in the world to re-establish jury trials. Mm. We now have more rooms available for jury trials than we actually had before the pandemic. So the whole country has been through a difficult period and the justice system is no exception. But the justice system didn't stop. And what this is now focused on is working out how are we going to fashion a justice system for the post-pandemic world. But in terms of of the catch-up, be that online or otherwise, um, this is going to cost, isn't it? And as we've been hearing today, just in terms of of schools and teachers, or even in terms of foreign aid, um, the number of people who want a slice of, of the Chancellor is vast. Do you think that there are the resources there to actually get on top of this backlog to make the kind of uh, reforms that, that you're keen on in terms of uh, using more online tools for courts? Well, as far as I'm concerned, a justice system uh, is a central uh, part of any civilised democracy. Uh, and that's why this year, for example, uh, there is no limit on the number of sitting days we're having uh, in, in the courts. Mm-hmm. So as far as we're concerned, we are running the system hot. We are going to try and make use of every room, every judge, every member of court staff to ensure that we get through as many cases as possible. But as you'll know, your colleagues in the Lords only the other day, uh, committees, pointed out that funding is an issue here, isn't it? Overall funding for courts and tribunals have fallen 21% in real terms. In less than a decade, they pointed out, that's got to be reversed, hasn't it? Well, we need to make sure that the funding is there to ensure that we have a proper justice system. And that includes the technology that we want to, to put in. Um, There's no doubt uh, that we have ambitious plans. Uh, We have ambitious plans to make sure that we have a justice system fit for the 21st century. And that's entirely uh, what I'm focusing on. Very, very finally, uh, I can't have a a government minister on without asking um, what your plans are for the end of June onwards. I wonder, Lord Wolfson, are you planning to go nightclubbing on the 21st of June? Um, The idea of me in a nightclub... um, (laughs) would probably be a breach of the Human Rights Act for everybody else in, in the nightclub. Um, so um, I, I, perhaps I'll, um, I'll, I'll steer clear of that. Um, I don't want to end up uh, on the front page of the Daily Mail. But what about Bookcabot in terms of, in terms of the, this uh, historic level of restrictions that we're all under at the moment? Are you, are you hopeful that, that by the end of June, at some point, end of June loosely, I'm, I'm saying here, um, these restrictions might be, might be gone? Well, look, uh, like everybody, um, I hope the restrictions will be lifted. But the important thing is that they're lifted on the basis of the Mm. evidence. I know that's what the Prime Minister and the entire team um, are are looking at. But, you know, the the sun is out. Uh, It's the second day of the Test match. Um, Things are are looking up. If only we get a few more wickets.
Lord Wolfson, David Wolfson, Justice Minister, bringing that long old look at online justice to a close. Thanks very much for listening to the podcast. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for subscribing. If you haven't done that already, do that now. And if you uh, like us and, and say nice things on the websites, um, Matt actually gets paid more money every time you four-star it, five-star it. That's a Chris 20 that goes in his back pocket, so it's worth your time. Matt will be back on Monday. I'll be back tomorrow. We'll have another pre-pandemic professor, um, Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter, um, mathematician, statistician extraordinaire. On that, obviously, but also Samba. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.